I'm always seeing things on the news and thinking that can't be right, can it? Listen to the KYW News Radio in depth podcast and make it make sense. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. So, Sabrina, what are you going to be doing about 4.20 p.m. this afternoon? Well, I'll probably be editing this podcast, Jay. (laughs) I don't know what you'll be doing. No, I know what you'll be doing. You'll be on the air. While we won't be partaking in any of the traditional activities of 420, (laughs) a whole lot of people will. And if you live in New Jersey, you're probably going to be getting ready to re-up tomorrow because that's when recreational marijuana sales officially begin in the aforementioned Garden State. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. Of course, we're going to talk about weed today with KYW's Mike Doherty. He'll join us later with an update on what's happening in New Jersey and just how this launch compares to what people pictured it being. But first, City Councilman Kenyatta Johnson had been on trial for bribery for the last four weeks, and late on Tuesday, a mistrial was declared in that particular case. Our City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb has been there for all of the proceedings. So, Pat... What happened yesterday? How did this end up resulting in a mistrial? Well, neither side convinced the jury thoroughly that uh, they were right or wrong. Um, The prosecution admitted that it had a completely circumstantial case, uh, which is hard to make. And they kind of had this accumulation of evidence. They kept bragging about how they'd done 150 interviews and had 35 grand jury witnesses and had amassed over 2 million documents through subpoenas and search warrants. They gave two letters of immunity. So it was was kind of like saying to the jury, look, we have all this evidence. None of it is direct, but come on, there's so much of it. They, the analogy that, that uh, the prosecutor used in the closing argument was, you know, if someone comes in and you're trying to figure out if it's raining and they're soaking wet and their umbrella is dripping with water, you can assume it's raining. And that was kind of like, look, this is what we've given you, a, a, a drenched umbrella, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and the defense said, no, you didn't. There was a lot of evidence, true. There was definitely a lot of evidence. None of it added up to beyond a reasonable doubt. So let's go back for a quick second for anyone who didn't hear our last episode kind of explaining what this trial is about. I mean, I was there for it and I still get a little bit confused about what exactly happened. What does this trial come down to? What What's the whole thing about? Okay, so it starts in 2013. Don Shavu gets a contract with Universal Companies. Um, She works for them for 16 months. A couple months after the contract ends, her husband, Kenyatta Johnson, who's a city councilman, took two actions, official actions. Uh, One was a couple months after the end of her contract, he introduced a zoning ordinance Um, on a piece of property that Universal owned in his district, the Royal Theater. There was nothing unusual about that. He introduces zoning legislation almost every week for someone or other. And and every city council person, every district city council person is always changing the zoning in their district. It's just a very routine matter. So, but they said that that was a payoff for the contract that Javu had had 
you know, for, for 14 months prior. The other thing that he did in 2014 is um, he got a call from the Redevelopment Authority that said they were thinking about taking back these three lots that Universal owned at 13th and Bainbridge because they had owned them for 10 years and, and hadn't done anything with them. Uh, the complicated thing about these lots, though, is they were the last three lots of a huge redevelopment project done with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Universal owned them jointly with PHA. PHA actually had a majority share of the lots. But the Redevelopment Authority was thinking about taking them back. So they called Kenyatta Johnson and let him know. He said, okay, tell them that you're thinking about taking it back and see what they say. And of course they said, no, we don't, you know, we want more time. And the redevelopment authority called Johnson back and told me, he said, okay, let them hold on to it. That was supposedly the other part of the payoff for Don Chavu's contract. Now, these are kind of routine actions for a district councilman. So if, they're, so if Don Chavu's contract was for real, there was no bribe, there was no payoff. It was just him doing his job. You know, if the contract was a bribe, then yeah, maybe this was the payoff for it. But there was no direct evidence of that. It was all a circumstantial case. You know, the government's been on a tear against Philadelphia politicians. They've, they've had a good run. You know, they got Councilman Heenan. Right. They got Congressman Fatah. I think they went into this with high confidence that they could get a jury to, to see their theory of the case. But, you know, apparently they didn't get all of them. So how did people react to this when it was declared a mistrial? Because we have to understand a mistrial is not an acquittal. It's not, but it's also not a conviction. So um, there had been a cadre of supporters of all four of the co-defendants in that court every day when they heard mistrial, which means not not convicted there was huge relief and they were hugging each other. They were hugging the defendants as they left the courtroom. Councilman Johnson came out after the trial, made a very brief statement. Don Chavu didn't speak at all. Councilman Johnson just thanked God and his supporters and vowed to just go back to work. And I'll continue fighting on behalf of the residents that I represent in the second councilmanic district. Councilman Johnson's attorney, Pat Egan, he spoke for a little bit longer uh, about uh, why he thought the jury had not been able to come to a decision. The issue in this case is that there was no evidence in our view. Fortunately, some of the jurors obviously saw that that way as well. And I think the hope was, you know, their thought was, OK, this is over now because who in their right mind would put on this case again? But within an hour, the government announced it was committed to, to retrying them. At this point, why would it even be worth it to take the shot at this again? Because it's been mentioned that this investigation has been going on for the better part of a decade nearly. You have the, the financial costs. You got lawyers. What's the point of chasing this conviction, basically? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been wondering how much this investigation cost. But even just the trial, every day of the trial, there were two FBI agents, an IRS agent, and uh, someone from the Department of Education, along with the two prosecutors. So that's six federal employees every day for five weeks. 
the amount of the alleged bribe was $66,000. I mean, if you weigh cost benefit, of course, if it was a bribe, you know, you, you would say, well, the amount doesn't matter. You have to root out this corruption. This is criminal. Um, I, I just think it was the fact that um, she did work for that contract, you know, not they couldn't possibly make the case that the entire $66,000 was a bribe because she she did work for it. Now, they don't think she worked enough, but she did do work. Even they had to concede that she did do work for that contract. <laughs> well, Pat, you know, we appreciate your insight on this. And here's hoping that when we get to a retrial, things are <laughs> at least a little bit smoother. We might be something having something a little bit more definitive come out of all this, but at least we know when it happens, you'll definitely be there. Pat, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Always a pleasure, Jay. You can follow Pat on Twitter at Pat Loeb. And coming up after this break, it's 420. And we're going to catch up on what's happening with recreational marijuana sales in New Jersey as they're set to get going in less than 24 hours. Keep it right here with us. We'll be talking to KYW South Jersey reporter Mike Doherty after this. I'm Jay. I'm Sabrina. And it's finally happening. In New Jersey, businesses can legally sell recreational marijuana starting tomorrow, 421. It probably would have been more appropriate to do it today. And on 420, April 20th, we've got our South Jersey reporter, Mike Doherty, here. Mike, you've been on with us a few times to talk about this. We we went through the challenges that were slowing down the process and everything, so what finally got us here? Because we were we were kind of in kind of this gridlock for months after the people voted on this in 2020. Sort of the you know the, the typical bureaucratic red tape of crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, getting all the paperwork done, uh, ensuring that this is going to be up and running the right way, not just quickly, was one of the governor's priorities. He mentioned a few times we've been through this stuff before, but making sure that this was going to open up in an equitable market where there's representation for you know people of color, uh, making sure that this won't have a negative impact on you know towns and places that didn't want to be involved, didn't want to participate. So a lot of this different things have got us here, but you know we're here now and tomorrow is the day. How many businesses in New Jersey have been approved to start selling recreational marijuana? So, this is opened up to seven businesses, all of which are already in the medical field. So it's just sort of a quick little switch over to them to get into to get into the recreational market. They operate 13 dispensaries in the state um, and about five, I think five of them are in South Jersey. So there's a, there's plenty to choose from down this way. Now, the state also said that part of the reason that this took so long to make sure that pretty much was to make sure that the rollout, which is kind of a fitting thing as we're talking about this, that the rollout, rollout, rollout was, was, was considered equitable. <laughs> now, Edmund DeVoe is the president of the New Jersey Cannabis Association, and he said that that was his goal as well. The, the goal is, and we will ultimately get there, is making sure that minority-owned businesses, New Jersey-owned businesses, uh, come to the forefront of this industry. Now, about that. Has New Jersey followed through on that promise? Do you have a sense of how people of color in the cannabis industry are feeling about this in New Jersey? So not yet. And that's because this had to open up to sort of businesses that have a foot in the door already, right? You know, we're talking about Cure Relief and Terra Send and Columbia Care. These are all companies that operate in numerous states already. And so 
in order to get the ball rolling, you have to have somebody who knows how to make a ball start rolling it, right? It wasn't going to get started, you know, within the black communities right out of the gate because they needed to have experienced, you know, businesses that have done this before. So as Ed, you heard Edmund mention, you know, we'll get there eventually. That's the goal. And so, so far, 102 businesses have been approved to operate in New Jersey out of more than three to 400 applications so far. Uh, Edmund DeVoe himself is black. And when I, t when I spoke with him, he didn't have an exact number on, you know, minority representation among those 102 licenses approved, but he was happy with the number and happy with the progress being made and said, this is just the beginning as we go further and we're giving more people approval and more stores to open. That will be something down the road and more black and brown owned businesses will come in that phase. Mike, you said a hundred something businesses have been approved, but only seven are actually starting sales tomorrow. What's the, the gap there? What else do the rest of those hundred need to do before they start? There's a lot of different things holding different people up and it's, it's hard to put a blanket on it, but mostly it's just, they're not ready yet. Um, whether it's construction of facilities, whether it's getting full, full on the capital they need to get these businesses off the ground. That's been one of the challenges as well. A lot of, you know, these black owned businesses don't have the starting capital to get going. So moving forward, that's going to be one of the sort of focuses on how to make this achieve the goals they set out to, to achieve from the beginning. Um, what's holding them up? It's hard to say. And not all of those, it's sort of splitting hairs here, but those seven businesses have more than 13 uh, of the of the approved licenses so far, because we're talking about cultivation, test laboratory testing, as well as the dispensaries. So it's not just the disp dispensary licenses that those are 102. That's for every business that operates in the state. So, you know, as the years go on, if you kind of think about it from a liquor store sort of perspective, there's going to be so many stores that open up and all, you know, all people just have to do is get on there to apply. So... We, we mentioned that today is 420 and these sales are starting tomorrow, 421. That just strikes me as it can't be a coincidence. Mike, do <laughs> oh, you, <hell> no. <laughs> do that, you know? That is not coincidental. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've talked to anyone specifically about this. Maybe we can just say, why do you think they chose to do this the day after 420? Because you would think oh. you would get a ton of sales if it started today. Oh, from a marketing perspective and from, you know, a sales perspective, you couldn't ask for a better day than for today. But that was specifically not the plan. It's not what I think. It's what the regulatory commission has said. Hmm. They wanted to avoid any sort of, you know, blitz or catastrophe on <laughs> on these places, you know, that you might you might get out of the, you know, extra enthusiasm from today. So that was specifically not the plan to in order to avoid any sort of logistical nightmares that might come from it. Because we're forgetting this isn't just Philadelphia. That's northern Jersey. That's New York City as well. You could have a whole lot of people rushing into different places yeah. and you could lead to a run on this sort of thing. That's a yeah, and very you know, it's point. funny because it's uh it is state law. I guess it's federal law that you can't transport past state lines, but I don't know how that will be enforced. So we are not uh, encouraging people from Philadelphia to go over the border <laughs> and bring it. You can go over the border and smoke it there, but don't bring it back. And that's that's another issue. Like, where do you do that? 
<laughs> you know, you can't and then just get in a car the, and walk drive in, back. Yeah. Walk into the mall parking lot and spark <laughs> up and go, go to Foot Locker. Like, <laughs> It's it, it does bring that does bring up like a logistical question in and of itself. I mean, Philadelphia obviously is a lot more lenient when it comes to say marijuana usage and everything else, but other places may not be. And you got to be you do have to be somewhat careful in that. I'm guessing. Yeah, and I, I know Sabrina asked what I thought about you know what was the delay and what what I what I actually think and nobody has told me. I haven't gotten this. I gathered this by just by sort of thinking about it. I, I spoke with one of the dispensary operators last week and he he said it would be any day now and that leads me to think that this has been ready for about a week but they wanted to hold off until after 420 because they didn't want to have this you know stoners holiday being involved with with the recreational rollout if, if they did this last friday there would be a the same logistical issues that you would deal with today sure whether it was today was the opening day or friday was the opening day i think it would still be the same sort of issues so I think they waited to get past this and then hopefully they'll be ready for next year. (laughs) (laughs) So what roadblocks are left with this? Like what will regulators and business owners be looking for now that sales are about to get started coming in here tomorrow? I don't know if there's any roadblocks remaining. I think one thing to watch for is that I've heard a number of towns that opted out initially that didn't want dispensaries or grow houses or any of those sort of things in their towns have sort of opted in now. They're like, they're like, oh, that doesn't look so bad after all. It seems fine. And so I think we're going to see more and more towns, you know, because more than half the towns in the state said, no, thanks, we're good. I think we're going to have a good, a good push in the other direction now. And we'll, there, there will be certainly be towns that don't want involved. But I think the number is going to go down a bit. And it's, I know also in the, in the aftermath of this, the state attorney general also came out with the ruling that police officers, for example, if they want to partake in it off-duty, kind of similar to alcohol, if you want to do it off-duty, you are welcome to do that as well. Because I know that was another story that you covered following this, too. Yeah, and that's still, you know, that is the law right now. I know there are people who don't like that. I, I spoke with one of the Republican assembly women from down here who doesn't like it, who wants to see that changed. And she applies the same principle to pilots and bus drivers and train operators as well. She just doesn't think certain people in certain important roles where others' safety is is on the line should be involved in this sort of thing. Yeah, from reading your story, it sounds like the kind of tricky issue there is there's really no way other than you can, you know, kind of visually tell, but there's no way to prove if someone like just smoked before coming in to work. You can't there's no breathalyzer. There's nothing like that. So, yeah, you want to make sure that people like cops and bus drivers, pilots, whatever, are definitely not high when they're on duty. But there's no real way to to gauge that, which, you know, to me, I'm like, I'm not going to judge what you're doing on your own time. But, yeah, obviously don't come into work high. Yeah. So with alcohol, the, the legal limit in Jersey is 0.08. There is no way to tell. There's no number like that. You know, everybody's body responds to THC, the active ingredient in, in marijuana differently. So one person can have X number and another person has twice that and they are in better shape than the first person. It's it's one of those things. It's really hard to tell. And that's been the the main holdup that I spoke with Beth Sawyer, the assemblywoman, and that was that was her main holdup. It's like, hey, you can't test for this. Like, how how can we be sure? And then she was also worried about like, what happens if there's a police involved shooting and that officer smoked the night before he went into work, but 
it's still in his system because THC doesn't exit your system for weeks. So what if there's an officer involved in a shooting, somebody gets hurt, somebody dies, and now this officer is being investigated for being high on the job when he smoked at home the night before. How do you prove that? And that's that's one of the main concerns. And that's another part of the conversation that we will ha- end up having at a different point in time. Mike Doherty, thank you so much for joining us today here to talk Anytime. about the start of what will be a very green Thursday in the, in the state of New Jersey tomorrow on 421. You can find Mike Doherty on Twitter at Mike, spelled like microphone, M-I-C Doherty on Twitter. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina boyd Circa. And tomorrow we go from talking about 420 to getting ready for Earth Day, which is on Friday. And we'll speak with some people from the Academy of Natural Sciences about the biggest environmental issues that are facing our city today. But before we get out of here, we wanted to say goodbye to a Philadelphia radio icon. Sid Mark passed away late Monday night at the age of 88. He spent more than 60 years on the radio here in Philadelphia, playing the music of his good friend, the legendary Frank Sinatra. His show, The Sounds of Sinatra, aired here in Philadelphia and all over the country for 43 years. Let's reminisce about a visit that I had with Frank around this time of year, but many, many years ago. And Frank said to me, Sidney, how many years do you plan on doing this show? I thought for a moment, I said, exactly what would you like? And it was he who said, well, is there any possibility we could keep this on for 50 years? I thought for a moment, I said, I think I can do 50. And as we speak, we've done exactly 65 years, that occurring last week. Our hearts go out to Sid's family, his wife, his four children, and his grandson, Jason. And we can't think of a better way to honor Sid and close things out for the day than with the words of the chairman of the board himself. I should like to take a moment to introduce to you a friend who has been a friend for as long as I've been in this business. And it's been a long time. This guy is some kind of a man. You all know him so well because he lives among you here. And I should like to have him stand and take a bow. And I speak of the wonderful Sid Mark and his family are here this evening. There he is right there. I drink to you, Sidney.